occult crimes, paranormal investigations, urban legends, and strange happenings. Welcome to Myths, Magic, and Murder. <laughs> hey, welcome to Myths, Magic, and Murder. This is episode 64. I'm Abby. I'm Kate, and we'll be your ghostesses in spring. Yay, we're back. We took a little break last week. But thank we you. returned. Yeah, thank you for letting us do that. Here we are in the warm weather, enjoying iced coffees. Not currently, but the vibe is there. Thinking about it thoroughly. Constantly. Really in depth. What are you talking about today, Kate? Today I'll be telling you about the murder of Kitty Genovese and what changed in the world of psychology for years to come. I'll be telling patrons a bit more about the psychology behind everything, so if you want to know more, head over to Patreon, Myths Magic Murder, to watch a video of me telling you all psychology nerdy things. Nice. I'm talking about the Velisca Axe murders of 1912, which nice. is an unsolved crime, so bit of a true crime episode well not a bit of it is a true crime episode so anything else you want to talk about before we get into the news no hit me with it from unexplained mysteries rabies could mutate into a zombie virus ah uh, joy 2021's going places because of coronavirus we now know just how easy it is for a virus to spread and mutate throughout the population and according to a new study from italy if rabies ever mutated a, a very small certain way, it could cause a real-life zombie apocalypse. Jesus. Rabies is known to spread from animals to humans from bites or scratches, and it can cause people to become hyperactive and aggressive, as I'm sure you might know. But if it mutated in a way that those who became infected became more aggressive, and it could be, like, transmittable through bites, you've got a zombie apocalypse on your hands. Well, you do a bit, but... The kind of the crux of a zombie is that they want to eat flesh and brains, and there's a difference between being aggressive and eating someone's brains to live. Mm, is there? <laughs> I don't know. I think so. I think personally. you're getting too technical with it. <laughs> if everyone was really, really aggressive and wanted to bite each other to make other people really, really aggressive, I feel like that's close enough. I think the essence of it is there. I am still scared of it. I still do not want it to happen. But can you really class that as a zombie apocalypse? Truly? What if it mutates more and you want to eat people? Then I would think of it as, as more of that. It wasn't the whole thing about zombies that they're supposed to be like undead. Yeah, but everything's <laughs> changed since that, isn't it? Yeah, if we just ignore that. We've moved on from that. <laughs> grow up, Kate. The time for undead zombies is past. <laughs> now, new, better zombies. Okay, all right. There are already about 100 variants of rabies as well, so, I mean, it's possible it could happen, but hopefully not, because I'm far too unfit the minute to survive for that. Also, right, Chloe Tang has not taken me all the way through my lockdown fitness routine. <laughs> Before I talk about that, I want to tell you about my dream I had two nights ago. Before we get into like really serious, horrible stuff. Oh, she's been going on about this non-top. Because she's like, you're going to love this. I was thinking about the podcast when I was falling asleep, I guess. And what a loser. I woke up at 3am, 3.45am to write it down because I thought it was hysterical. And when I wrote it out, I realized it actually isn't that funny. But I'm going to tell you anyway. Ah, oh boy. That's the best way to tell so, a story. At 3am the other day, I wrote a note in my phone that says, Snail with ribbon on next for advertising. Kidnapped snail, toxic snail in crystal bag. Literally, I what? I don't remember what toxic snail means. Apparently it was toxic. 
But I remember me and you, we were both at a park and I was like, you know what would be a really fun and exciting way to advertise our podcast? Snails. So we kidnapped a snail, we put it in like a little bag and we tied a little ribbon around its neck and on the other side of the ribbon was the podcast name and then we released the snail into the park. We were hoping that people would see the snail in like a little tie and be like, I have to check that out. I'm going to give you a couple of reasons why this would not work as an advertising technique. Number one, snail death. That's horrible. Why would you bring that up? I'm not wrong. Snails get eaten. Snails get stepped on. Snails are small. Which brings me to my second point. How are people going to see this? What a niche localized advertising technique. That's like putting your podcast onto one beer mat in one pub. In like the local pub. Maybe I was going to make it bigger. Every snail in the whole world. Imagine this giant snail with an advertising ribbon. Picture this, Kate. Our podcast isn't related to snails. It's a pretty not effective way to advertise, but I thought it was pretty funny. I appreciate your creativity, Ab. Let us know if you think that that's what our next ad campaign should be. Let us know if you think we should attach ribbons to snails. (laughs) Dreamy is on something. Okay, (laughs) let's tell your story. Now into the horrible, horrible time that is true crime. My sources are Wikipedia, History.com, Grunge.com, All That's Interesting, Biography.com, and NYTimes.com. Okay, so Catherine Susan Genovese, or Kitty Genovese, as she was more widely known, was born on the 7th of July, 1935. She had five siblings and was born to Rachel and Vincent Andronel Genovese. As you can probably tell from the surname, she was Italian-American, which, sorry for the stereotype, made her a charming chatterbox. I only know of one other Italian-American, and it's Joey from Friends, so... Wow, you're basing all of your information off of that? I am, yeah. No, I, I I read that she was a chatterbox, and she was very popular and stuff, so I haven't just made that up, I promise. She was raised in western Brooklyn, New York, and lived in a four-family row house in a working-class neighbourhood. All in all, she had a pretty normal upbringing, and was known to all in the local neighbourhood for her energy and zest for life, which is how I would like to be described. Zesty. Like a lemon. She was a very popular child and loved New York. Her parents moved to Connecticut after she finished high school because her mother had witnessed a murder, so wanted to move somewhere safer. Oh god, fair enough. Kitty decided not to go with them. Instead, she went to Queens, which is still in New York, and worked as a secretary, then a hostess, then a barmaid, eventually setting into a bar bar manager position. In her adult life, she was known to be dedicated to her work, reliable and punctual. Often, Kitty would work double shifts, not because she particularly adored being a bar manager, but because she was saving up to open her own Italian restaurant one day. Oh, I know. What a wholesome thing. She was arrested in 1961, because she was taking bets on the horses at the bar she worked at. The horses weren't at the bar. A horse walks into a bar. Ouch. It was only a brief arrest. She was fined $50 and fired. I didn't look up what $50 in the 60s is now. Why? I'm sorry. You know that that's an important thing. Look, I'm really sorry, but I'm just going to tell you that it's more than $50 now. Wow, thanks. And she was fired, obviously, because you can't really... You can't, you can't do that where you work. She got a different job, though, as a bar manager elsewhere, so it worked out. It was fine. 
She seems to have like a fairly good relationship with both of her parents. Um, but one day her dad was hounding at her to find a man and settle down. And she said, as she often did, no man could support me because I make more than a man. Nice. That's that's some good energy right there. Absolute bad bitch energy that I, I am taking with me into 2021. Another reason that she didn't find a man was because she was a lesbian. Oh. Yeah. Well, nice that one, makes dad. more sense, I guess. Yeah. Take that, dad. Yeah. Never going to find a man now, dad. She ended up meeting Mary Ann Zialonko. I'm sorry. That's a hard last name. In 1963. And they absolutely hit it off. They're in a lesbian club. It was a great time. Sick. The couple moved in together into an apartment in Kew Gardens, which is in Queens still. So Kitty could still go to work. Pretty local, yeah. Yeah. It was one of those apartments where there's like a row of shops at the bottom and then people live like above it. So it seems really sweet and quaint. Upsettingly though, to me, you and everyone else, we don't run a podcast where everything ends up okay. Maybe we should change to that. You know what? That's the end. Everything was good. Cue the bastard himself, Winston Mosley. He was a 29-year-old with a wife, two or three young boys, the sources kept changing how many kids he had, and a home. He had five German Shepherds. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's quite a collection of German Shepherds. That's a lot of dogs. Mm, yeah. But anyway, yeah, he was like husband, dad, that kind of thing. And on this morning, uh, March 13th, 1964, he decided to get up at about one or two and leave keeping everyone sort of asleep with the intent to and i quote kill a woman oh charming why why the fuck yeah no one no one in particular he just got the idea in his head and wanted to follow it through jesus christ he took his serrated hunting knife and went on his way so he was like driving around the streets looking for just a woman that's terrifying yeah that's absolutely terrifying then when he was at some traffic lights, he saw Kitty driving home from a late shift at the bar. Like, she was in a car, he was in a car. He was like, that's it. He um. followed her home, watched her park her car 30 meters from the front door of her apartment. A hundred feet. He ran after her, so she went around sort of by the front of the shops rather than up the back steps to her apartment, obviously. And he caught up to her and stabbed her twice in the back. What a sick person. Kitty, knowing she was right outside her apartment complex, cried for help, saying, Oh my god, he stabbed me. Help me. One of the people in her complex shouted down at Winston, saying, Let that girl alone. Her attacker ran away, got in his car and drove off. And Kitty slowly went towards the rear entrance to her apartment. Over ten minutes later... Winston returned, wearing a hat so that his face couldn't be seen. He searched the car park, the train station, and the complex for Kitty. What the fuck? Eventually he found her laying on the ground because she couldn't get into the locked, the locked door because of her earlier wounds. So she was like, at the bottom of the steps. And nobody came to her? Nope. Oh my god. He stabbed her 11 more times. <sighs> he stole her money and sexually assaulted her. None of the 49 people in the complex came outside. That's insane. Obviously not all of them were awake, but some of them were. Obviously, if someone yelled down. After Winston had left for the second time, a close friend, 
basically she like heard a commotion going on at the end and she ran outside as he'd like left and like didn't care if he was coming back or whatever she was like no i'm staying with kitty like she's my friend she screamed for someone to call the police who arrived several minutes later but kitty died en route to the hospital that's so sad only a couple of phone calls to the police had been made and i mean literally like two maybe three what that's infuriating yeah it was four years before New York had implemented the 911 emergency call system. So basically you had to like dial O for operator and then be directed to your local police station from that. So like it was a time consuming process. They also weren't prioritized properly, either because the calls in about Kitty were confusing or because the severity of the situation hadn't been made clear. Most neighbors thought she'd just been beaten on the street and then they saw her get up. So they were like, oh, she's fine. She'll she'll have just gone home. Right. Most of the neighbors didn't phone the police, though, because they thought others would have already done it. And they didn't want to overwhelm the station with calls. It was such a shame. It was noted that if the police had been called successfully after the first attack, Kitty would have survived. It's worth noting as well, so the first attack was done around the front of the buildings. And then, like I say, she made her way to the rear. So when she was at the rear of the buildings, you couldn't see anything. Okay. So none of her neighbors could see anything. Right. Like, if you saw the first bit, maybe you would know what was going on, but otherwise you wouldn't have a clue. So in the morning, the police went to Mary, Kitty's girlfriend, as I said, um, so that she could identify Kitty's body. And so that she could be questioned. They questioned Mary for six hours, badgering her on her sexuality and the couple's sex life. Ooh. After their completely inappropriate and unprofessional questioning that lasted far too fucking long, mm -hmm. they ruled Mary out as a suspect. Yeah, no shit. Right? It wasn't until about a week later, I think it was specifically six days later, that Winston was on the police's radar because he'd been caught committing a burglary. And then when he was in police custody, he confessed to having murdered Kitty and two other people. Annie Mae Johnson, who was shot and burned in her own apartment. Fucking hell. And Barbara Kralik, who had been murdered in her parents' home. In addition to this, he also confessed to between 30 and 40 burglaries. This guy just won't quit, right? He went to trial and he pleaded not guilty. And then his defense was like, you should plead um, not guilty by way of insanity. Right. Because it turned out he was a necrophile. Oh, God, it just gets worse, doesn't it? That, it does. Really lovely today. Luckily, though, he was found guilty uh, he did escape from prison once, but they got him again. Oh, that's good. Yeah. And he died in prison in 2016 after 18 denied parole requests, meaning he was one of New York's longest serving inmates at the time of his death. Solid. Unfortunately, he was only tried for the murder of Kitty because someone else had already confessed to Barbara Kralik's murder, which put a spanner in the works for the police. So they were just like, you know what? We might not get him on that. Let's just try to get him on this one. Yeah, at least justice for at least one person I think is better than any none of them. Sorry, exactly, of yeah. Course. Understandably, the news of Kitty's murder was huge. Everyone thought that New Yorkers were cold-hearted bitches, essentially, 
and that no one cared about anyone else if you lived in like a city understandably yeah an investigative report was made by the times which told the world that now bear in mind all of the figures and stuff have been disputed 38 witnesses looked on while a young woman was stabbed to death and they used a quote which would forever haunt the kitty genovese case i didn't want to get involved my god this prompted psychologists at the time to figure out why no one did more to help. Yeah. Kitty was a popular girl that people knew who was in the prime of her life. So why did no one go out of their way to help? Obviously, I know, you know, we all know that if anyone's in peril, then you should help. It doesn't matter who they are. But these things should have been factors that made everyone want to help more. You know what I mean? Definitely. So eventually, Dali and I think it's Latane. There's a there's an accent on the last e. I'm not that good at French, so <laughs> came an up. Attempt with... was made. <laughs> yeah, I learned about this when I was like 15. So just just give me this one, okay? They came up with the concept of the bystander effect. I'll go into this more over on Patreon. Like I said, I think we'll be releasing it on Thursday. So if you want to know more about psychology hit us up. But what it means is basically that people will be less likely to intervene if there are more witnesses of a crime or like of something bad. Which is exactly what happened here. Everyone thought that someone else had done it. Yeah. It wasn't that people didn't care. It was just the bystander effect in full form. Obviously, those neighbours weren't all dickheads. They were just regular people which I suppose must have been nice for them to hear, because I have no doubt that they felt awful once the media grabbed a hold of the case. I mean, anyway, but let alone, like, the media's absolutely slagging you off, and you're just like, I'm not a bad person. Yeah. And now that the bystander effect is known to us, there are campaigns out there like London's See It, Say It, Sorted, or See Something, Say Something. It's kind of to push you to make the difference you know what i mean mm -hmm. and not only did kitty's death prompt this huge finding within psychology but it also sparked new york city to adopt the 911 system in 1968 so that crimes could be reported quicker and prioritized much easier to attempt to prevent awful crimes like this from happening again obviously none of it will help kitty but at least it will help and has helped many others in the future yeah at least something good came out of it yeah. Yeah. So that is the really horrible death of Kitty Genovese. That is just upsetting. Yeah. Thanks for that, I guess. Imagine learning that when you're in a classroom. No. Right? A bunch of hormonal teenage girls just sat around crying. You earlier. Listen, I don't need you to attack me. I'm your co-host. Not also, also not a hormonal teenage girl. Yeah, right? Unless you're lying to me about Square your age. <laughs> But there's going to be a fight live on the podcast. In which case, go school. What are you doing? If you like the podcast and you want to support us on Patreon, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash Murder and check out what we have on there. Yeah, we don't have a tier system now, so you can give as much or as little as you want. And we've got different video content on there so you can see our beautiful faces while we tell you things. And extra content. So like I say, all of the stuff on the bystander effect and, and more will be on there on Thursday. 
and you get to know what we're going to release and when and it's like a nice little nice little social circle yeah you can also follow us at myths magic pod on social media yeah or go check out our website mythsmagicandmurder.com and you can request stories you can tell us your things you can let us let us know what the his apps are pretend she didn't say that please as you can well tell she's not a teenage girl because of that <laughs> as well as that you can send us your haunted happenings terrifying tales and spooky stories like i said you can do it on the website or you can do it on midsmagicandmurder at gmail.com right time for more horrible talk but hooray i can't wait F- interesting and fun to learn about well fun is the wrong word interesting and interesting to learn about i guess so I'm going to be talking about the Velisca Axe Murders, which occurred in 1912 in Velisca, Iowa. It's an unsolved crime, and some of the victims were children, so there will be mention of that, but obviously I'm not going to talk about that in depth at all, there'll be no details, but just as a heads up, my sources are VelliscaIowa.com, Wikipedia, IowaColdCases.com, all that's interesting, SmithsonianMag.com. So the Moore family were a large, well-known family in their community. They were wealthy because the father, Josiah B, don't know what the B stands for, but it was in there, was one of the most prominent businessmen in the area. He married his wife, Sarah Montgomery, who was an active member of the Presbyterian Church in 1899, was when they married. They've both got such cool names. Sarah Montgomery and Josiah B. Yeah, right. Josiah Bartholomew and Sarah Montgomery. You just, you can't just give him, you can't name him. Oh, He's not the family dog. Sorry, can I not? I have. Sarah also often ran children's day exercises at the church she was at. I'm not sure whether she was an active, like whether she worked there or, or what, but she was there a lot. Okay. And Presbyterianism is a form of Protestant Christianity as well, just as a side note. Yeah. The couple had four children together. Catherine, Herman, Boyd, and Paul. Catherine had two close friends, Ina and Lena Stillinger who were also unfortunately victims in this case. The family lived on a quiet street in a white farmhouse. It was a small area, well it still is a small area, it still exists, and the population today is around 1.2 thousand, and it mostly consists of a school, houses, a park, and a church. It's absolutely insane what Americans think are small, uh, because my village has about 200 people in. It probably doesn't. It does. It totally does. I feel like it doesn't. Google it does, and they people, all came to that pub. Google how many people were in your village. Because my town, I thought that was really small, and that has 40,000 people in it. All right, bear with. Okay. Never mind. Maybe I'm wrong. Go on. 4,899. See, so that's small, but this is even smaller. Oh, God, could you imagine working in the local pub? The population in the early 1900s was around 2,500, it's estimated. Mm -hmm. So that's how many people there were at the time of of this. Mm -hmm. On Sunday evening, the 9th of June, 1912, Josiah and Sarah took the family to the children's day service at their local church. Catherine asked to bring her friends, Ina and Lena, and the family agreed it would be a good idea. I'm honestly pretty shook right now because this whole time I thought it was Ina. Ina and Lena. Ina and Lena. Ina and Lena were neighbours, and their parents had agreed that they could stay over at the Moore's house for that night, so they were planning on going home with the Moore family. The children's day service was the end of the year event at the Sunday school that the kids had been going to, and as I mentioned earlier, Sarah was a key part of these events, and it was like a fun and educational experience for the family. 
After the service, there was some general mingling between the kids and the parents, and it lasted quite late, until around 9.30. The family lived only three blocks away from the church, and they enjoyed snacks when they got home before they went to bed. They did not lock the door. That's the thing about small towns, isn't it? Yeah, crime was something that didn't really happen there. It was such a small area, everyone was so friendly. Why would you bother? That gives me the creeps. If I lived in a place and like no one locked their doors, I'd be like, oh no, something bad's going to happen. Yeah, it, it, the thought of it freaks me out, definitely. I checked the doors locked like eight times. Yeah. Shortly after midnight on June 10th, someone snuck into their house through their unlocked door carrying an axe. It's thought to be an axe that Josiah owned and kept in their backyard. They had like a barn. According to the coroner, the killer took an oil lamp from a dresser rigging it to burn very low, so that it would only be enough light for one person. Then they used this to guide themselves through the house. One thing to mention is the layout of the house. So from what I've gathered about reading about it, it has two stories. And the ground floor has a guest bedroom where the neighbours were staying. And then the more children stayed in a room down the hall from their parents on the upper floor. So there's several rooms in the house, yet the intruder crept past every single room and headed straight to Josiah and Sarah's bedroom. After this, he headed to the other rooms before silently leaving. Josiah's brother lived next door to the family, and noticed the next morning that the house was extremely quiet, especially for a family that was usually so loud. It was discovered that Josiah got the worst of it. It was evident he'd been killed with an extreme amount of force. His body was in the worst condition, and it was thought to have been hit 30 times. Oh my god, that's anger. There was also a mark in the ceiling where the axe had been swung so high above the killer's head that it, it like dented the ceiling. So at this point, it kind of seems like it's a targeted attack for Josiah. But the intruder killed everybody else. I maybe so there was no evidence, I don't know. What's extremely odd is that after he'd killed everyone, the intruder set up a bizarre ritual downstairs. So they'd covered the victims' faces in sheets or clothing. And then they covered all of the windows and the mirrors with cloths or towels. So every window and mirror is covered. Mm-hmm. All the bodies are covered. And then they took a two-pound piece of uncooked bacon out of the fridge and put it in the living room next to a keychain. That wasn't from the house. Okay. And I don't know why. I can figure out why you'd cover the windows. People can't see in. Yeah. Cover the mirrors because you don't want to see yourself if you're ashamed of it. Yeah, cover the faces because, like, you don't want to humanize them. Especially if you know them, then you might not be able to go through with it. And I'm presuming it's someone that knew them because how many killers do you get that turn up to a house without a murder weapon? If they took one of his axes. True. But why are you getting a slab of ham? Maybe for like a red herring. You know, like when people um, during the satanic panic, when everyone would sort of make it look like a satanic ritual just to like throw people off. Maybe, yeah, that's a good point. Or maybe they're about to start chowing down. And then they heard something. And raw bacon. On two pounds of raw bacon. Maybe they're going to cook it. 
There was also a bowl of water in the house that police believe the killer had used to wash their hands with before leaving the house. It was estimated that the intruder left at around 5am because of the oil lamp, so they hung around for quite a while once they'd killed everybody. Yeah, because they were going to eat bacon. The police, the coroner, a minister and some doctors that entered the crime scene to investigate the next day. But oh, everyone, as... just come on in. Oh, wait. But as soon as word on the event spread, about 100 people from the town arrived to check it out. No! The police encouraged them not to go inside because it would scar and upset them and damage the evidence. But everybody did. Oh my Christ. Apparently, one of the townspeople took a bit of Josiah's skull as a souvenir. Which is really gross if true. Obviously, again, it's an old case. I don't know if that's 100% true. But if so, that's fucked up. But yeah, a hundred people walked in all over the blood, saw all the bodies, touched stuff. Old cases anger me. It's frustrating, isn't it? (sighs) The officials had lost control of the crime scene, obviously, so the National Guard showed up around noon and secured the area. Obviously, though, it was 1912. They didn't really have much to go on. DNA testing was not possible at all. Fingerprinting was new, but they couldn't find any. And this was extremely frustrating because the murder weapon was left inside of the house. It had been wiped clean with, like, a cloth. But that was it. So if it it would happen now, we would be able to solve it super easily. Yeah. The police had very few leads, and they made some attempts to search the town and the countryside, but the killer would have had around five hours of a head start since leaving the crime scene before the police even arrived, so they might have just fled. Yeah. Or they might have come back to the house to look around. True. Well, they did bring in bloodhounds, but because the whole neighbourhood walked through the crime scene... Yeah, exactly. They're they just taking find anything. to frickin' Baker's house down the road, do you know what I mean? Police named a few suspects that they thought could have been after Josiah, one of which was Frank Jones, who was a local businessman, and they had some beef. So Josiah worked for Frank for many years before he left to start his own business because he thought the hours were terrible, because they were. But his business became so popular that they became rivals in the industry because he became super wealthy. Mm -hmm. Frank was also a senator, and he was a member of the Methodist Church, And he didn't like Josiah's views on religion. There was also a rumour that Josiah was having an affair with Frank's daughter. So, the two hated each other. Fair. So much so that they would cross the street to avoid talking to each other, which was a big deal in such a small, like, friendly place. Frank was the prime suspect for obvious reasons, but he was never able to be formally charged with the murder. But he was placed in front of a jury. Many people thought that he used his title and influence to sort of kill the case against him because people people dropped it. But his political reputation was completely destroyed anyway, so he could never be senator again. Some people think that he couldn't have done it because he was 57 at the time. Mm-hmm. So the logistics of that wouldn't have really worked out very well. What, just because of the axe? Yeah. Because it was heavy and you'd have to be sneaky and stuff. Um, quite a lot of the time. So I'm really heavily into axe TikToks. That's very specific. Yeah, like wood cutting. Okay. Um, and I'm not sure, obviously, the difference between cutting a log and killing someone. But quite a lot of the times with the heavy axes, the reason that they're heavy is so that gravity can do the work. You know what I mean? So you just basically like, you pick it up and then you just drop it. 
Okay. Um. So, I don't know. I feel like as long as you could like pick it up, you don't have to like swing it. I mean, I understand. Obviously, there's the uh, mark on the ceiling or whatever where it was swung, but like you might not have had to swing it more than once. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, Frank was also rich, so he could have easily paid somebody else to commit the crime. Mm-hmm. So there was also an idea that a man named William Mansfield could have been hired to kill the Moore family. So it, this happened in 1912. But in 1916, a member of the Burns Detective Agency had a thought that Frank had hired William to kill a man who'd humiliated him. Okay. Also, in 1914, it was thought that William had killed his own wife, his in-laws, and his child with his axe. Both this crime and the crime of his own, the killing of his own family, they were committed in very similar ways. So obviously an axe was the weapon in both of them. The mirrors were covered in both situations. There was a burning lamp left in both homes. There was a bowl where the killer washed their hands in both homes. Wait, which one happened first? This one I'm talking about. That one happened first? Yeah. Hmm. So he could have easily just been influenced by it and been like, that's a good idea, but why would you do that if you know that people are looking for the killer? I don't know. Wait, which one happened first? The Villisca one? Yes. Happened first? Mm-hmm. Okay, because I was going to say if, if I thought you meant the one that you were talking about then, like the family one, rather than the Villisca no, one. No, that one happened right. in 1914. Right, right, right. Okay, because I was going to say then the Villisca one could be like a copycat, but... That's pretty sus. So he was placed on trial for the murders of the Moore family, but pressure from Frank and a strong alibi that he was in Illinois at the time because of his payroll records allowed him to be released. Another suspect was Reverend George Kelly, who was a travelling preacher. In 1917, George was arrested and charged with the murders of the Moore family because he was in town at the time when there were a lot of things that sort of fit, so they just arrested him because they wanted... They wanted somebody to blame, I guess. Fair enough. He was known to suffer from mental health issues, and he would enter and leave towns quickly. Mm-hmm. He was also thought to be a bit of a sexual deviant, and would obviously uh, sometimes like peer into people's windows and like peep on people, I guess. Several people reported him doing in this in Villisca before the murder, like not on the day, but while he was in town. There were other reports of him being creepy and like sex obsessed and like a bit of a a perv, but nothing intentionally violent. The worst of his acts, besides, you know, looking through people's windows, was putting up an ad for a female transcriber. And then when someone like replied to the ad, he was like, can you do it naked? So, you know, he's a bit weird. Yeah, he's a bit of a creep. I feel hesitant to think that it was him, though. Why? Because I feel like police like to blame outsiders especially in small towns because you don't want to believe that like you've been going like to the pub with an actual like murderer of like an entire family fair enough um and also like how would he have known that like how would he have known the layout how would he have known um why wouldn't he have taken his own like light source with him why wouldn't he have taken his own weapon with him if that was the intention well it could have just been that when he got there later that day he decided to kill them so hold on one second so it was thought that george had spotted the family at the children's day event because he was there Mm -hmm. 
and followed them home before spying on them all night from their barn. And there was evidence for this because there was a depression in some of the hay bales in the barn and there was a hole in the wall where he could have watched the house. Mm -hmm. He was definitely at the Children's Day event and he left right before the bodies were discovered the next morning. Mm -hmm. Also, when Lena was discovered, she was wearing a nightdress with no underwear and it was drawn up past her waist. But there was no evidence of like sexual assault, so there's no real evidence that this was sexually motivated at all. It could have been just a coincidence. Yeah, kids wriggle around a lot while they're asleep. However, he'd sent bloody clothing to the laundromat a few days later, and once the murder had been discovered, which is really weird, he returned to the area and posted it as a detective so he could get to have a look around the crime scene. Which is pretty bizarre. Yeah, that is weird. Maybe... Right, I'm just playing devil's advocate today. So maybe... Someone else murdered them, right? But he was in the barn on the hay bale watching because he's just a bit of a perv and he accidentally witnessed an entire murder and then once whoever the killer was had left, he went in and tried to, like, help in any way, realised that they were all gone for and he was like, oh my god, I'm going to get framed for this. So he left. But then why would he come back? conscience isn't he a holy man he's a reverend isn't he yeah okay so he was interrogated for a really long time and he eventually confessed he said that god wanted him to do it however he took this statement back and we can't really accept it because he was so heavily interrogated at the time so it could have just been like pressure yeah and the jury was originally hung but then they let him go another suspect was henry lee moore who was a suspected serial killer. He wasn't related to the Moore family. It was just a coincidence with the names. Mm -hmm. And he was convicted of the axe murder of his mother and grandmother a few months after this murder. My God, why can't people pick a different weapon? Jesus. The murders were also very similar, with bedsheets over the windows on both of them, covering the victim's faces, wiping clean the axe, removing stains from himself. And there were a few other suspects as well, but none of them led anywhere. See... I feel like a lot of those things, though, are just kind of something that you'd do. You know, you would wipe clean the axe. You would clean off your hands. You would, you know, cover their faces. Like I say, if you knew them, it's probably more likely um, you would put something in the windows. Like you said, you don't want anyone to see it. Yeah. So I'm not really sure how much we can be like, oh, my God, that was exactly the same. Like what we had with William. Was it the other guy? With William? I mean, it still wasn't exactly the same, though. Yeah, it's just, that's what I mean. If he'd have brought out some bacon, I'd be convinced. <laughs> and a keychain. That would have been it. But yeah, that's it. That's it. We don't know who did it. I think Frank's kind of suspicious, but only because we know that he has history with him. But then who else would have such a hatred for Josiah? Because I presume that's who the victim was. They went straight to his room. He got the worst of it. Everybody else just was killed, obviously still terrible, but it wasn't quite as passionate as him. What's weird to me is that everyone was still in bed, right? So it must have been quiet somehow, axe murdering quietly. Well, they thought that everyone was still asleep based on the positioning, so they all just went in their sleep, so it was very quiet. Yeah, but 
it's weird to me that Lena and Ina were still killed because they weren't supposed to be there. You know what I mean? If you're like, I'm going to go murder the Moore family, it seems weird to me that you'd also, if the, if the kids are still asleep, why are you murdering them? Just in case, I guess. But yeah, I don't know. Seems odd. That's what confuses me about Frank doing it. Maybe if he'd have paid William, if he'd have said, like, go in there and kill everyone in the house. Yeah, then he he wouldn't have known who was related to who. Well, exactly. Or the Reverend. But something about the Reverend just doesn't seem right. I can't see why. Yeah, he's a bit of a, a pervert. You know? if, yeah, it feels like they tried to pin it on a traveling, mentally ill, perverted man. And it's like, that's not great, but would he axe murder a whole family? Yeah, like, there's a difference between being a big creep and like, you know, that's totally not okay. He should have faced prosecution for literally just being awful. But like, there's a big difference between axe murdering an entire family and being a creep. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. I think him leaving is suspicious, but if he does that anyway in different towns, it's not really. It's just coincidence. I do think it's weird that he came back, though, and he didn't even come back. He came back and said he was a detective, but... I guess, though, maybe he was just like, I want to see. Maybe he was like, everyone else is talking about it because a hundred people were there, and they all saw it. I want to go see it. Maybe. Possibly. You can go to the house now. It's on TripAdvisor. You can Uh go and... um. Have a look around. They do a tour. I think you can stay overnight. It's apparently haunted. Oh, I would hate that. Could you imagine? You're staying where a whole family died. No, I would never. I wouldn't even visit. I think I could go if it was like summer during the day. You know? I'm not going in winter at night. Screw that. Very specific way to not go. I'm not going anyway. You can go in winter at night if you want. You know what I meant. It's everything's creepy then. If it's snowing, I'm scared. No, I just mean like the days are shorter. Doesn't matter anyway because I'm going at night. Yeah. Why? What's the? I'm point? an idiot. She's like, if it's me. cold, I'm afraid more. It's scary because then you'd be like, oh my god, am I in like a ghost chill or is it just cold? I get that anyway. Me in this. I'm flat. chilly and I'm like, oh god, <laughs> oh no, I'm haunted. Wow, that's really interesting. I firmly believe. What did Lena and Ina's parents have to say about all this? I don't know. Because again, it's just not very modern, so I, I don't have all of the stuff on it. There were a few newspapers, but no one has like scans of them. Yeah, There's a I, few front covers. I just find it odd, man. I really do. And I think as well to say that, oh, there must have been one person because the the light was down all the way to the lowest is just silly. I think that's a silly conclusion to come to. What do you mean? Well, you know you said it was dimmed all the way. Yeah, the oil oil lamp. The oil lamp, yeah. So if I stood next to you, like linking arms with you, we could share one light. I don't think that was the point. I think the point was more that if you'd lower the lamp all the way down, it won't wake anybody up. Yeah, that's what I mean. But you said for one person. Because this could be two people. I guess it could be two. It wasn't even considered to because there was only one axe. Yeah, but you could have one person, like, in another room. You know what I mean? You could have one person, like, putting up the sheets or whatever. Or you could have one person, like, guiding the other person where to go. Yeah. I don't know. I I just think I can't really understand it. I mean, obviously, I could never understand something like that anyway, especially to kill a whole family like that. 
but to kill anyone is just awful. But to kill that many people so quickly, and then children. hang around with some bacon afterwards, yeah, it's really bizarre. But yeah, I can't really understand why why it was done the way it was done. But I don't know. I don't think anyone will really ever know. I hate not knowing. I hate Me it. too. But I thought it was interesting anyway. God. Well, thanks for that. I'm going to think about that often and trying to come up with a conclusion. Please do. But you can't arrest anyone. God damn it. So. Let us know what you think. Yes, please do. Who do you think it was? What do you think happened? Do you think this is a good podcast? Please rate us on iTunes. <laughs> and on that note, don't have listened before bed. Listen before bed. <laughs>